e tipu e rea, mō nā rā o tō ao, tō ringa ki nā rākau a te Pākeha. Hei ara mō tō tinana, tō nākau ki nā taonga o tīpuna Māori. Hei tikitiki mō tō mahuna. Grow up, O tender youth, in the time of your generation, your hand reaching for the Pākehā tools, for your physical well-being, your heart dedicated to the treasures of your ancestors, as a plume upon your head. E nā haue o te motu ki a koutou nō tā wāhi, ko tēnei te wāhanga o te ahikā. Ko maraia rakurakua hau, nō mai hoki mai anō, ki te hōtaka nei a te ahikā. Welcome to Te Ahikā, our kaupapa Māori show, here on Radio New Zealand National. I'm Justin Murray, and for the next 54 minutes, we've got you covered. It's sexy, it's everywhere in schools, magazines, video games, television. Hell, it's so normal we even laugh about it. Remember that scene in the Pulp Fiction movie when the Bruce Willis character has a dilemma because he doesn't know which weapon to use? What we're talking about is violence. Vic Tamati is fronting the It's Not OK anti-violence campaign. It hasn't been easy, especially when it's been a matter of Vic reconfiguring his core beliefs. My brothers and sisters, my mum, my dad, um, my in-laws, um, most of my friends that I knew, um, all the mates that I had in the gangs, we all shared the same love. And um, it was normal. It wasn't anything exceptional to, you know, it wasn't um, family violence, what it's known as today. It was just, you got a hiding. It was normal. Vic Tamatsi joins us later in Tiahika. She's young, she's hungry, and she's talented. Rhea Hall is taking the Wellington music scene by storm, and a collaboration with Ricky Gooch is helping her along that pathway. As Justin Murray found out at Pol Pol Pol, the annual Māori music concert held in May. Haka sort of is the driver behind all my, my performing and, and my songwriting and, and everything I do, apart from my iwi as well. But yeah, Kapa Haka is the, is the kōhanga meki where I sort of grew and became a singer. First up, we'll hear about a day in Taranaki that celebrates one of its more noted sons, Dr Maui Pomari. I'm Justin Murray. I'm Maraia Rakraku and this is Te Ahika. Maui Wirimu Pita Naira Pomare was born in 1876, Ure Nui Tarnaki. Now he's often been associated with the big wigs of that time, Apirana James Carroll and Terangi Hiroa Peter Buck, because between the four of them they shaped Te Ao Māori, the Māori world, and in its wake Te Ao Pākehā, the Pākehā world politically, socially and economically, to the extent their influence is still felt today. They met at Tauti College in Hawke's Bay, and it was from there the first stirrings of Māori electric seats was mooted. This at a time where only individual holders of land could vote, effectively ruling out Māori who held their land collectively. They formed the Young Māori Party, and after taking up their respective studies overseas, Terangihirua traipsed around the Pacific and Pōmare went to the American Medical Missionary College in the States, 
all entered politics. Now here's where it gets interesting. Remembering these Māori men were products of their time and living during a period of great change for Māori, which in some ways meant they were effectively driving policies that undermined and eventually led to the erosion of key practices within Māori culture. For instance, as a medical doctor, Paul Māori saw the devastation of Western sicknesses upon Māori living communally, who had little or no immunity to how living in such close vicinity was contributing to en masse death. And here's where it gets controversial. The Suppression of Tohuna Act 1908, designed to criminalise roikinana, was used in the end to break up papakainga, Māori villages. As the people disperse and become more fragmented, the society becomes dispersed and more fragmented. It isn't to say that Pomare, Buck, Carol and Ngata were insincere in their efforts, not at all. And the purpose of our kōrero isn't to minimise their contributions, but they were of the time where they truly believed. Grasping the Pākehā world by both hands would benefit our people as long as we remained tūturu Māori. That is true to our Māori heart. The whakatauki that opened this week's broadcast, E Tepu E Rea, speaks to that in this. Toringa kingaraco atipakeha, hei ara mototinana. Your hand reaching for the pakia tools for your physical well-being. Tonako kingataonga a otipuna Māori. Your heart dedicated to the treasures of your ancestors. Fast forward 135 years and the Taranaki Uri of Maui Pomare celebrate his life because there is no doubt he shaped Te Ao Māori. Here, another Taranaki man making a mark upon Te Ao Māori, especially in relation to Te Reo Māori, Ruakere Hond, no Te Aotearoa Menati Ruanui, explains the purpose of Maui Pomare Day that was held on the 27th of June at Owai Marae, Waitara, Taranaki. これを冷めて、冷めて、冷めて、冷めて、冷めて、冷めて、冷めて、冷めて、冷めて、冷めて、冷めて、冷めて、冷めて、冷めて、冷めて、冷めて、冷めて、冷めて、冷めて、冷め
um, and it took a while for his ashes to come back from America. Um, he had gone over there to seek um, the, to see whether there were other ways to to try and um, uh, find a cure or to to get well again. Um, over the period of him being away, the period of him dying and coming through, uh, Taranaki as a whole were looking at ways in which they could recognise. Um, his involvement, and they had, they had been um, speaking with um, Apirana Ngata, and um, the government wanted to build some sort of statue, and there was a, there was discussion here in Taranaki as to where that statue be, should be located. It was finally decided that it should be in Waitara, um, at um, Manukorihi or Owai Marae, um, and and being the place where the the conflict first first started in 1860 significant this year being 150 years on yes. from that from those first shots being fired on the 17th of march um but for for us here in Taranaki um, Maui Pomare day um aligns with the the end of the of the Māori year and the beginning of the new year yeah. us here in Taranaki as other iwi um, we we look at the to mark the end of the the year to recognise all the mate within the region, and so the bringing all the kawe mate from around Taranaki on the day before Maui Pomare Day on the Friday, mm-hmm. um, the way in which we mark it used to always be on the twenty seventh because twenty seventh of June is the day that Maui Pomare died, so it used to always be um, commemorated on the twenty seventh of June, but. For a lot of practical reasons, it was moved to the closest weekend, yes. um, closest Saturday to the 27th. Um, so it's it's a very unifying um, event for us here in Taranaki. And then we move into the into the the on the Saturday is the commemoration service, where. Uh, when Taranaki comes together, and there are quite often many dignitaries, it gives an opportunity to raise the sorts of things that, that Maui Pōmare was very passionate about, obviously the land confiscation, but also kaupapa of health. And so, such as this year, there's the um, the launching of the Marae-based um, youth court, um, which is... Um, which will be launched on this, this day. There's a number of other places around the country where it's also been has 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 been launched. And um, but for us here in Taranaki, we see that as part of Maui Pomare's legacy. Um, and there's uh, a presentation from the DHB. So there are a number of health kaupapa that are presented on the day. So Maui Pomare is um, and the 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 timing of this is really integral for for Taranaki's identity. It's a part. It's a major event um, in Taranaki's calendar, and it gives an opportunity for um, Taranaki as a whole to raise certain issues and to come together and to talk about those with those who are who are attending the event. Um, and and it aligns very closely as well with the 18th and 19th of of June at, yes. held at, at out at Pariaka, um, given that the the significance of June and the 18th and 19th, um, it's. Um, and it's partly the reason why Te Reo Taranaki is so strongly in support of the event as well, because it's a part, it's a, it, it's a reflection of real, it's a reflection of identity. They're one and the same. Could you just um, clarify, please, Ruikiri, the, the significance of the 18th and the 19th? The, the 18th and 19th is largely, um, well, the 18th and 19th was established within Pariaka as a, as a day for iwi to come together 
communities to come together and to discuss whatever issues were, were, they were being faced with. And so when Tohu and Tefiti were alive, they would do things like analyse newspapers and the like, and then they would use those days every every day, um, every 18th and 19th of every month, those, those who we held and they've been held still continue on today. Um, and so there are, there are opportunities to come together and to discuss those issues. So the 18th and 19th of June is hugely significant because that's those are the days when the mate that relate to Pariaka are brought together. Um, the way in which many people who connect with Pariaka but live elsewhere, quite often those mate lie, lay to rest in, in outside the region. So them coming back into Pariaka on the 18th and 19th of June is very important. And so it's, a, it's, it's another significant event in the calendar of Taranaki. Kia ora, rua kiri hond, nō te atiawa me ngāti ruinui. Head to our webpage for photographs at radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika, that's T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A. And while you're there, why not have a good look around, have a look at archival stories, our photo gallery, and you can even subscribe to our newsletter, te ahika at radionz.co.nz. We love hearing from you. In the past, Vic Tamatsi literally let his fists do the talking. Not the ideal poster boy for a stop violence campaign. Of course he is. I spent a day at the Awanga Marae Hastings Hawke's Bay a month ago where Vic was talking about what he's done to live a violence-free life since 1992. He presented alongside a wahine who has been the victim of violence, Maria. That's right. Jude Simpson, and boy, if there's a story of survival, it's hers. Though, Justine, when you really look at it, both Vic and Jude's stories are of their survival of violence within their respective whānau and from violence itself. And what you heard from Vic is that at the heart of the matter is, well, core values, core beliefs, what you believe about yourself or what you believe to be true through what is reinforced or acted out around you. So, simply put, if you go to hiding every day, you'll think that's normal. But then if you're told every day you're beautiful, you'll think that's normal. So if you experience the contrary, you'll think that's not normal. Now, part of being kaupapa Māori is that every now and then we extend an invitation for non-Māori, our Pacifica cousins, to feature on Te Ahika. Given the prevalence of violence in our communities, hell our society, it was important to hear about the issue from the perspective of a Polynesian man who has owned and worked through what is often a hidden issue. That's not to say it's solely a Polynesian or Māori issue. Well, class one either, but one that affects all of us and that often starts with core beliefs. Tarafalava, my name is Vic Tamati and I'm here to do talk about um, stopping family violence. Um, I think the um, I think the the main core belief was that I had the God-given right um, to to discipline and love my children um, with violence uh, because that belief came from um, when my dad beat me up. Um, every time he bashed me up, he would give me this um, big long lecture and tell me that he did it um, because it was his, his alofa, was his love. It was his love for me and it was his love to me. Um, and so I literally took that to be the truth because um, being, being a Christian family, that this alofa, this love, came from God to Jesus, to my granddads, to the Bible, to my parents, to me. And um, 
and literally had that bashed into me um, by that, and so I carried that through um, into my family. <coughs> um, I didn't want to do what my dad did to me, so I thought I would do it differently and better than what my dad did. So rather than punch and knock, um, kick my kids and knock them out, um, I used things to discipline them. And so, um, yeah. The hose. The hose, the, the shoe, a cord, um, just anything to bash them with, but not my, my fists or my feet, and considered myself to be actually better than my dad. Um, and it was done with this the same um, core belief that this actually was love. When is it that you made the realization that that was actually power and control? Oh, um, that came from the anger management program when they had the cycle of violence charts on the wall, and um, they it's all broken down into segments, and each of the segments that they explained. Um, all the way through to um, the hearts and the flowers where you make up and then you go through the cycle again it's like oh that's what I do well how come it's not called love why is it called the cycle of violence this, you know, it just at first it was like you're lying you've got to be lying mm. that's love that's the love of my dad and then when, they, when um, I realised that it's not love the big awakening was for me was, then what is love? If this isn't it, then what is it? So what is it that we're doing? And that's when I realised that that cycle was actually the curse of family violence. And so I had to take it from being love, calling it for what it really is, that curse, and that's what I had to break. And it's not something that you were doing on your own either. I mean, you had your wife and your children going through it at the same time. Um, my brothers and sisters, my mum, my dad, um, my in-laws, um, most of my friends that I knew, um, all the mates that I had in the gangs, we all shared the same love. And um, it was normal. It wasn't anything exceptional to, you know, it wasn't um, family violence, what it's known as today. It was just, you got a hiding. It was normal. So, Vic, what do you say when... People say, when you hear the old, that's just part of your culture. Because you would have grown up hearing that. Yeah. Well, and I guess for me, as there was um, confusing even then when um, it was said it's part of my culture because I had a grandmother who, at 94 years old, when she passed away, had all her teeth, no fillings, and was the kindest person I knew. So if that's culture, then her culture, which is that one, which was loving, caring, sharing, tenderness, positive, affirming, if hers is older than my mum and dad's one, then I'd rather have hers. I don't want this one that's got um, where you give away... Um, where they have this thing called fight lovey lovey in the Samoan language and it means you have to give and give and give till it hurts and some of the stuff that you give is barrels of um, bovi masima which is actually killing our people which is food which is food mm. and um, which was introduced 
in barrels by um, by the sailors when they came through, salt, salted meat. Yeah, it's a way of preserving the kai for long journeys, eh? Well, we took it as our staple diet. Mm, mm. And now we're the high in heart disease, respiratory diabetes. problems, diabetes. And I just think, well, that's not our culture. It's funny, isn't it? It's like how we absorb things and then we accept that as being traditional. We accept it as being the truth. Like the hidings yeah, are the like truth. Yeah, the hidings. Are traditional. Yeah. And so they call that culture. And I say, well, then I don't want it. I need to have a culture in my family that's violence-free and violence-free of all forms, not just physical violence, the emotional, the uh, mental, the psychological, the cultural, the church violence, the whole lot. There can be no exception to the rule in my family. Okay, so you used a phrase back there called nothing changes if nothing changes. Could you explain that? Well, if, if you choose to remain in a, in a, um, in a violent um, relationship, then that's all you've got. But if you choose to make the change, to step out of that realm and make the change, then it'll start to change, you know? You've, it's, it's got a, um, yeah. And, and nothing will change if you don't change. It just remains the same. And you can have variations of that same, but it's still the same. So I, I thought I was different from not punching and kicking my kids, but it was still the same. And the change for me, the real change came for me when I went to the Stopping Violence program and got picked up tools and skills to help me make the change and sustain and maintain the change. But even that in itself wasn't easy for you. I mean, you spoke about how you found it very difficult to find services for you as a man. Yeah, it was. I mean, um, talking about to, for men to talk about anything to do with violence and their feelings, um, that's hard. So to break that cycle and go and ask for help or find help, then that's double jeopardy. You know, where do you go? Who do you go see? Is it the church minister? Is it the school counsellor that's been counselling your child for the last three years? Um, there was nowhere to go. And so... Some people give up, at that, give up at that stage, Vic. Well, you don't give up. You don't even start. There's no point. It's easier to go back to this... Um, to that um, comfort blanket, you know, that comfort zone. It is easier to be sad, bad, mad, crazy than to go somewhere where you're not familiar with. And so it's easy to, like, give up the drugs and just stay drinking or give up the drinking and overeat or just smoke cigarettes and, well, I'm going for a walk every once in a while. So nothing changes. You're just adapting um, your crazy life to make it a bit different, but it's still the same. Without really addressing what the actual issue is. Never, never addressing what the core belief is. And it's the core beliefs that are the triggers. Because when something happens, you just slip back to that core belief is, I have a right to do this because this family violence, because it came from God to Jesus, to my grandfathers, to the Bible, to my parents, to me, and it's pre been preordained. And so had to change that belief to another belief, which is family violence is a curse, and I need to change that. Does it make it that much more difficult for you as a male travelling the country talking about how violence is unacceptable when you see how violence is sexed up in movies, uh, magazines? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. You know, while that's all going on in society, that it's accepted um, the violence on those um, um, PlayStation games, while it's on TV, while it's on big-time wrestling, um, all the boxing um, tournaments and stuff, rugby, um, while it's all glamorised and part of society, to then tell our young men that family violence is not okay, and in fact any form of violence towards another human um, is not okay, you're just fighting against the whole of society. And so to go around the country and share that message, um, it just makes your um, the role that I've got double, triple, quadruple more difficult because they're looking for something that tickles them, you know, that they can buy into because it's something that's sexy. Well, this is not a sexy topic. And in fact, it's the very thing that hits the core of all their beliefs. Um, and behind all of that um, sexiness is money. Because all those games, all those um, television programs, um, all the sports, um, they all make money. Whereas dealing with family violence and being talking about being a perpetrator of family violence and having victims from your family violence, um, is not sexy. It does not make money. Um, it does not create interest. It causes men to go into their shells. Um, it may bring um, some of the women out to talk about it, but for the men, for the perpetrators, the men, um, yeah, they're just running for the hills as fast as they possibly can. You've been with your wife for 34 years and you've brought up six children. Now, why stay? Some men move from partner to partner without really addressing the issue. You've stayed. 34 years is a long time to stay. Um, I've often explained um, um, doing the campaign, being on the campaign trail and um, sharing our family story is that um, my, the monitors and the people that um, have pushed me and told me to go do the campaign is my wife and my children. And um, I begrudgingly agreed to do it. On the journey of being a safe man, I have realised how much I owe them. It's just that um, I put them through so much shit in my life. Um, uh, abused them, I've slept around, I've... Um, um, done violence to just about everyone I know and they still care and they still love me even with all of that and they want me to go and do this campaign and to tell um, like my daughter lady said um, that I'm not to minimise and I'm not to exaggerate So they're making you accountable They keep me accountable, they're the, still the monitors and so while I'm on this journey doing the campaign, it's like my penance, and I owe them. And so I need to give back to them and to my grandchildren what has been missing. Um, the father, the husband, uh, the partner, the friend, the lover, um, the koro, the grandfather that they've always wanted. And I don't know if I fully 
participated in giving back that back to my children, but I sure as hell going to make sure I give it to my grandchildren because I owe it to my children to do that. And I owe it to my wife, um, the hell that I put her through. So why would I want to go anywhere else and move around with um, other part? I've done that with other partners um, previous to um, attending the anger management program. And my family, my wife and my children, have the ones who have sustained me and stayed with me. So I guess give it all back. So you know what you, you've just described to me, it sounds like, and when you were talking earlier, is it's really about owning your shit, isn't it? Yep. Completely. And not blaming anyone else for any of it. And in order to own it, you have to know where it comes from. So for me, um, I've put it down to three words, and it's uncovering what all that crap is discovering how to fix it, and then recover, fix it. Has part of that recovery involved forgiving your parents? Um, no. I don't forgive my parents. I don't think I can. Um, for what they did to me, I don't blame them either. For what they did, it was all they knew. Um, it is about uh, me letting go of all of that because it's not their fault. They only knew what they knew when they first came over from Samoa in the 50s. And they may have been colonized before they came here, but that's what they knew. That were their, those were their core beliefs and they lived by it. So it's not about um, um, forgiving them or blaming them. It's me just saying, well, it's happened. I'm now doing something about it and now just move on. So I love mum and dad. Uh, my dad passed away last um, November, but I don't blame them, and uh, I, I don't need I don't need their forgiveness. I guess I just need to forgive myself um, for what I've done to my kids, to my wife and my families, um, to my brothers and sisters, to my in-laws. Um, just learn to love myself and forgive myself for what I've done to to people. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't be able to move on. So, yeah, to my dad, may he rest in peace. Um, I just want—I actually wanted him to die. He was in so much pain in the last two years that it was a blessing that he's passed on and he's no longer in pain. Um, I don't cry for him. I think he's in a much better place. And um, I know that I'm in a much better place. So there's no need for tears for my dad. Now, sometimes people associate violence with drugs and alcohol. But that wasn't you. No. No, it wasn't. Um, came from a very staunch Christian family. Um, Samoan Christianity. Um, brought up in the PIC church. And uh, both mum and dad were just um, were very violent. Um, and the violence that they told me, that um, love, came from the Bible. Of spare the rod, spoil the child. And so the more... They spared the rod on me, the more they loved me, because they kept telling me that they loved me. Um, Dad's idea was to punch and kick me till um, I was unconscious, not just once, not three times, but maybe up to six times in a hiding. Um, he would knock me out. And my mum, on the other hand, would um, sit beside him 
and tell me to get back up so that he could knock me back down again. And mum's idea of giving us a hiding was uh, we called it walk on water because Jesus walked on water and mum just jumped up and down on us like a trampoline. And so the standing joke around the kids, us kids growing up was, oh, you're going to get it from mum, you're going to get the walk on water. And then we'd all crack up laughing. Cause because we, that is a way of handling it too, isn't it? It's that black humour. Yeah, it's that black humour that we had. And, but it was also we um, wanted, you know, it was actually the opposite. We wanted to get the walk on water because it was better than what Dad would give us. It wasn't as bad. And Mum was only short and little. so and The Dad, walk on water was much better. It was better to get the walk on water than to get a hiding from Dad. Um, I, unfortunately... Um, didn't have a choice. I just got a hiding by the old man because I was the oldest son. And the oldest son had to do all the fa- I was all the jobs, had to lead properly, had to do all the laonga speeches. And so everything was just pounded into me until I ran away. I'm Maraia Rakraku. This is Tahika, and I'm talking with Vic Tamati. Well, the other thing is that um, is with the, um, the violence... Like there was no, because um, you asked me about drugs and alcohol, um, there was none of that involved. Because they were church people, um, we didn't have alcohol in the house. We didn't have drugs or cigarettes. But even yourself, when you got married and you were having your own family? No. Um, violence was my drug of choice. Um, alcohol was a, um, what was it? It was a... I didn't like it because it took away the edge of being on point sharp to commit the violence. And so I didn't want... I mean, it was easy to beat up somebody who was drunk, you know? So why get drunk? To get beaten up. So all of us back in the day um, would never get drunk when we went fighting. We wanted to be right sharp when it happened. Now, when you were talking before you you were giving examples of the violence going on in your home. But there was violence happening throughout your lifetime in society. Yeah, yeah. You know, everybody was responding to, you know, getting the strap at school, getting hidings everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah, it was everywhere. You know, when we, I think I was about um, 16, and I was walking, and this is like the, um, the other type of violence, um, I was walking home with my cousin. We were all happy, talking away. And then we got pulled up by the uh, police. And the police said that um, that we were we had committed a um, burglary. You know, um, I was working with my dad at the time. Um, my cousin um, was studying to be a doctor. And they were telling us that we had committed this burglary, which was, you know, over on the east side. And we had walked from the west side. And then they told us we were overstayers. It's and like, you're born here. And I was born here. So was my cousin. So, you know, and when we got home, um, my cousin went into the kitchen, turned on the light to um, boil up the pot to make um, uh, heat up some food and uh, put the jug on. And I seen the light from the bedroom. I rushed around and switched it all off. About a second later, um, a big searchlight come across the window. And because if Dad had woken up and seen that, we would have got a hiding. And then to try and explain to him that we were stopped by police, which meant we were going to get a triple hiding. And so it was like even things 
that are totally unrelated to the home was enough to cause us to get a hiding. And so you had to be um, on. Uh, you'd have to be alert, alert the whole, whole time. time for any little thing that could cause you to get um, a hiding. But the examples you were giving, Vic, I mean, you didn't even need to have something that was obvious to you. No. It could just be anything. It could be anything. You know, my dad, he taught me how to fight and he taught me how to um, stay on, on edge. And so he taught me how to go to sleep and still be wide awake. So I could hear um, like a rustle going under, you know, somebody walking under my window in the middle of the night. And I did. And I woke up and I went into snick, snuck into Dad's room, woke him up quietly and said there was somebody outside. And he said, okay, do the thing that we said. And so Dad went out the front door and I waited by the back door. He picked up the machete and I picked up the rock that held the back door open. And this, I think, um, was maybe 11 years old. So, yeah, I grew up with it like... I was born into violence. It was what I knew, it was what was taught to me, and in fact I was very good at it. I didn't like it, because I had to do it. So I never knew how to play. So for me, playing was grabbing us, um, me and my brother were breaking tiles, and one of them broke like a knife, and so I said to me, give me your hand. He gave me his hand and I slit his wrist. That's what a new play was. Mm. Um, I would beat him up against the, put him up against the kitchen wall and just start punching him for no reason. My little brother knocked me on the head with a key and I just, one punch and I knocked him out. That was play. That's what we were taught. You know, we used to sit in a circle. This um, family used to come out from West Auckland to um, meet us and they had a car so they'd come and meet us. And they had six children, and we had six children, uh, six brothers and sisters, there were six of us. And we would all sit in a big circle. And then um, the adults would say, right, you stand up, and you stand up. And then those two had to fight each other. And then the one that wasn't crying and was willing had to sit down. The one that was crying and um, didn't want to fight had to stay standing and had to fight somebody else. So we didn't need pit bull fights. We didn't need uh, roosters having fight. They'd make us do it. And for me, my head told me that this is the way you greeted each other. So when I grew up older and with our friends that were running around in South Auckland and we hadn't seen each other for a while and we'd seen them in their car and we waved out to one another and we said, meet you down Waikareka Park, 8 o'clock. So we all went down to this park um, where they have the stock car racing, all in our cars. We all parked the cars facing inwards. We all got out of our cars and we all had a big brawl. The cops turned up, shone all their lights on us, told us to stay where we were, and we said, we're just saying hello. And they went, you what? They said, you're under arrest. They said, no, no, man, we're just saying hello to each other. And the cops said to us, all oh, carry on. And so we just carried on knocking each other out. And the cops just, they must have just got tired of it and left, and left us to it. So, core beliefs. That's not the way you greet somebody. <laughs> it's not. Well, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I actually thought that's what you did. When we went to school with all my friends in South Auckland, 
the thing that we did at lunchtime when everyone else was playing was we would go into the middle of the field, a small group of us, and stand in a circle, and then two would, stand, would get into the circle and just punch each other in the jaw to see if you could take a punch on the jaw. And so one, one day we, were, um, we did that, and one of the guys punched out one of our mates, Dibbo. Um, his name was Dennis. And so we all walked back to class, and the teacher said, could someone please go get Dennis? And no one would move because we knew he was knocked out, that he couldn't take a punch. And so no one, she was going, could someone please go get Dennis? And we all sort of stood there looking at each other. Looking guiltily like, at each other. Yeah, because like, Marvin, you go because you knocked him out. But that was our playtime. You know, and we were just kids. But now I guess through all your work, you now realise that, you know, that violence that you were perpetuating came from somewhere else, eh? Yeah. Like, who did your parents see it from? Who did yep. they experience it from? Yeah, yeah. Um, who did your parents' mates experience it from that it was so normalised? Yeah, and it was. It was all normal. It wasn't family violence. You just got a hiding. Everyone got a hiding. Yep. But you've been violence-free since 1992, and you've done amazing things in Christchurch. Legendary things, actually. Pacific Underground. Pacific Underground. What <laughs> all up, those what plays up. that you fellas are doing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, that was us. Um, after I finished the program in 92, um, in 94, um, my wife and I said, well, we've got to do something. We can't let our kids go through what we went through um, in the home, on the streets, at church. So we formed two, um, two organisations, one called YCD, which was a, a youth centre, and Pacific Underground, which focused on telling Pacific yeah, stories. Pacific Underground. And um, so my wife and I started YCD and Lossa and her cousin Oscar and another guy, Simon Small, um, they went and started the um, uh, Pacific Underground straight after. And so the combination of the two groups, we brought them together to do, um, with her cousins and my cousins, to um, do holiday programs. And the holiday programs were um, uh, performing arts. So Oscar brought his mates through, which was Mario Ngaoa, Dave Fane, Shimpala Lisi, and uh, Dave Fane. And then they worked with our kids. And my cousins came in, um, Tanya and Michelle Moanga Titia. And, um, they t and so all of them um, took all the kids through a performing arts yeah. training yep. um, from beginning to end and taught them how to uh, write. Yeah, it was pretty legendary in Christchurch in those days. Well, we didn't think so. Yeah, because like just, you're just living, living your lives. And we just wanted to um, keep our, our kids safe, because mm. around Christchurch at that time were um, things like the white power and skinheads who were just attacking, uh, wanting to attack our kids. And they were big kids, but they were still school kids. So we had to give them an option and find some safe options. So... Um, Holiday programs were what we set up uh, for our kids. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, and everyone um, prospered out of it, I guess. And through that, you were advocating non-violence. Yeah, and through it, we I don't, I don't think we were advocating non-violence. What we were advocating was positive right. um, um, alternatives to going out and 
um, being shitheads on the street and um, destroying property, you know, all that stuff. It's like, come in here and you can tag on these walls. Uh, come in here and you can play basketball. Come in here and you can dance or you can write or you can... So there were lots of options for them to... Um, to do um, positive things. Now, you want to develop um, programs for males. You'd like to have something similar to Women's Refuge for males. What's that about? Um, since I did the um, Stopping Violence program in 92, um, I realised um, like there was no support for me. Um, the same aloneness that I had um, being violent it was the same aloneness I had recovering from violence. There was no groups to go to. There was no other man to talk to. There was no drop-in centre. There was nothing. Um, I could go back to the Stopping Violence program, but that meant doing another program, which I didn't want to do. I wanted to keep moving forward, not keep staying back in. And so over the last few years, I've thought about what was needed. And for me, it's um, while there's perpetrators, there's victims. Stop the perpetrators, you have no more victims. So why aren't we working with the perpetrators more? And so I, I want to have a, a, a men's shelter where violent men can go to and ask for help. Um, they can also go there for um, support um, afterwards, um, after they've done a program, and they can also go there after work. Um, instead of going straight home with all their all the shit they've been do, getting at work, they can drop it here, then go home. Um, they can also do anger management programs, um, parenting programs, counselling, one-on-one, um, um, couple counselling, uh, family group counselling, the whole lot. FGC could be done there, a family group conference. Um, so, Is none of that being done now for men? No. At all? Only the anger management programs. Mm. It all ends up being a service that wraps around the victim, which tend to be women. Yeah. So the, the priority has been for the last 30 years around victim support. Um, so that's where women's refuge come in, which is fine. Uh, I think there's a really, really is a needed place for women's refuge, but there hasn't been anything to stop the perpetration of the violence. All the anger management is, is after the fact not trying to stop it. Or else they do it um, when they come out of prisons for about five seconds. Uh, you know how they have those counselling courses sometimes yeah, after yeah. prison? Well, you've got to do the Steps to Freedom program um, when you come out of jail, but that's still after the fact. So for a man to say, I'm not going to beat my wife, I need to go somewhere, where is there to go? Mm, yeah, my name is uh, Victor Mati. Um, if people want to get a hold of me, you can just Google, are you okay? And that'll take you to our website. And um, uh, one of the roles I have on there is to answer people's questions. So you can email in with your question and I'll answer it within a week. Kia ora, Vic Tamatsi, no hamoa. If you know of anyone affected by violence or needing information, you can ring this number 0800 456 450. It operates daily and is open from 9am to 11pm. Or if you have internet access, go to our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika, T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A, and there are details on how you can contact someone. Kia kaha. I'm Mariah Rakuraku. And I'm Justine Murray, and this is Te Ahika. 
Rhea Hall more or less exploded onto the Wellington music scene as the lead singer for Hope Road. While that band no longer exists, Hall has teamed up with her whanaunga, Puawai Cairns, gigging around town. There's a collaboration with Ricky Gooch, but more recently she was one of the seven sisters brought together for Matariki. Now, Ria Hall, um, you, well, you just came off the stage, like, what, 10 minutes ago, five minutes ago. Yeah. Um, you've been singing a long time, girl. I have, I have. It seems like it's been a longer journey than what it actually has been, but um, 10 years professional, that's when I was 17, so I'm 27 now, but um, good good journey, yeah. choice journey. Now, if I remember correctly, this this chick... Who used to compete in Manu Kōrero and Kapahaka? Yeah, all right. So how did they, how did it all begin um, in Tauranga Moana for you? Oh, through Kapahaka, definitely through Hakas. Um, yeah, Hakas sort of is the driver behind all my my performing and and my songwriting and and everything I do apart from my iwi as well. But yeah, Kapahaka is the is the kōhanga meki where I sort of grew and became a singer. So yeah. How long have you been away from home? I've been away from home since 2001, so nine years after I finished school. Yeah, 2000 was my seventh form year, left Tauranga in 2001, yeah. So would you say that that has helped you, you know, to fly to fly the nest, so to speak, mm-hmm. that, that um, spread your wings in terms of the awaiata? Oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. So leaving home and uh, getting life experience elsewhere. I lived in Aussie for a couple of years, lived in Auckland, and now I'm here in Pōneke, so I've definitely had a lot of life experience. Well, I think I've had a lot. <laughs> I'm trying to express that well, in my 27 music. years of you. <laughs> <laughs> Hope Road. Tell me about Hope, Hope Road. Road. Yes, well, Hope Road started back in early 2006. Um, I met the drummer from Hope Road at, uh, I don't even know if it's there anymore, the Blue Note. Notorious Blue, Blue Note, Note up, there, up Cuba. <laughs> Oh, the blue I think note. it's actually turned into something else. Now I'm not quite. You see, the bar might be karaoke bar, eh? Absolutely, blue yeah. So I, I met my drummer there on a random karaoke, uh, sorry, jam session, and he asked me if I had a band. I said no. He was like, "Well, do you want to meet these people?" And then I ended up meeting uh, Wiremu Barabo, Lotu Latu, obviously Des Mellon, the drummer, and that was Hope Road, Hope Road Tuturu. So yeah, reggae roots, reggae, yeah. I mean, that, that's obvious that that particular genre inspires you, Roots oh, Reggae Dub. Yeah, I, I think that has a lot to do with, um, uh, you know, reggae is an interpretation and a, a way of, of talking about one's struggle. And I think the, the beats and the rhythms and the music itself personifies the struggle. Um, and that's why we Māori connect to it so well and we perform it so well. And, and uh, it's what I grew up on. So that's uh, obviously I had to, it translated and transcended. So Now, you yeah. toured with Holly Smith. I did, I did. I toured with her in 2008. I went overseas with her to Europe as one of her vocalists. Uh, that was a really, really awesome experience. What a buzz. Huge buzz. We were away for like a month. I'd never met her prior to that. And then I ended up learning all her songs and meeting her and rehearsing with her. So. How did you score that gig? Just word of mouth? Actually, no, through another really, really good friend, very talented singer, Bella Kalolo, who's Māori and um, Samoan Tongan descent. So um, she hooked me up with that gig. So, yeah, that was huge for me. It was wicked. Man, what, wicked. A, what, a great thing to, what a great thing on your CV. <laughs> well, I work full-time, so I can't commit to the music co-papa full-time, but um, my night times are dedicated to music. So what I'm doing at the moment is I'm writing my music with, uh, with Ricky Gooch, who's from Trinity Roots and 
Eddie Danger Spell fame. Um, so he's doing all my music, and I'm going to release an EP uh, in November, December of this year with an album following next year. Who do you draw pers- uh, inspiration from? Uh, first and foremost, I draw all my inspiration from, from home, from Tauranga. Uh, that's where I was born and bred, so my iwi have a lot to do with... My iwi have a lot to do with... Um, with my musical direction and the way I sing and interpret my vocalisation um, and also obviously my whānau, my, my sisters, my father especially, yeah. Ria Hall, no Naitirangi Nasirangi Nui Nasi Pukina. Keep an ear out, the EP is dropping later on this year. A neira te whakamārama o te whakatauki mō tēnei wiki. E tipu e rea, mō nā rā o tō ao. Tō ringa ki nā rākau a te pākeha. Hei ara mō tō tinana, tō nākau ki nā taonga o tīpuna Māori. Hei tikitiki mō tō mahuna. Grow up, O tender youth, in the time of your generation, your hand reaching for the pākeha tools, for your physical well-being your heart dedicated to the treasures of your ancestors as a plume upon your head. July 18th, it's Whakatefatefa time. That's our documentary series where Mariah and I focus on a particular issue. I'm up next and I'm looking at the world of Māori fashion. And that's all of a day from makeup to clothing. So you're with makeup artist Nicole Taikato Wheeler. Aira, and I checked out the annual Middle Moda Indigenous Māori Fashion Show that was in Wellington last week. And what did you find, Justine? It blew me away, actually, Mariah. Diverse Māori artistry, satin fabrics made to look like harakeke, the gorgeous models. One particular model who I talked to had tāmoko apu legs. So that was quite interesting to see For that. real or painted on? Oh, no, no, for real. For <laughs> real. And uh, the high-heeled shoes. Oh, my gosh. I don't know how they walk in. Ginormous. Don't, huge, like... It's almost like they're in ballet shoes. It's unnatural, Justine. (laughs) (laughs) It is, actually. I mean, um, they're poor calves. Anyway, so that's coming up in Whakatefatefa. It sounds like it was fun. It was fun, yeah. (laughs) Me whakarongo mai iwi ma. Now, next week, I have an interview with one of the legends of the Māori world, Ranginui Walker, who was honoured recently at a dinner for his contribution to Mātauranga Māori, Māori Knowledge. And Nga Marae o te motu is back after a long hiatus. Yes, we're getting there Fano. We're at the top of the South Island now, o Maka Marae, and I'm with Kylie Nepia. Nō reira, he mihi tēnei ki tamatau kai kōrero i tēnei wiki. Mena kai rā wiki wiki mihini. Hoki mai hei tērā rā tapu. Mauri ora tātou katoa.